Welcome to CodeCasts, a podcast series presented by the ICMI, the International Cyanide Management Institute. CodeCasts aims to provide our listeners with useful information about the International Cyanide Management Code and to help you understand some of the Cyanide Code's compliance requirements and expectations. This series is designed to supplement the training and guidance materials that you can find on the Cyanide Code website. If you'd like to access those materials, such as the standards of practice we refer to, please go to www.cyanidecode.org. You can also find more information on the resources referenced in this episode in the show notes. In this CodeCast, we will discuss the Cyanide Code's expectations for emergency response systems and procedures as related to compliance with Principle 7 of the Cyanide Code. Principle 7 calls for signatories to develop emergency response strategies and capabilities to protect both communities and the environment from a potentially harmful cyanide release. A primary requirement for compliance with this principle is the development of an emergency response plan that addresses potential cyanide releases that require a response. It is important to note that the code does not require the emergency response plan to be a single, standalone document. Although many operations do have a single comprehensive emergency response plan, response information can also be included in documents like standard operating procedures, operating or contingency plans, first aid or safety procedures, either alone or in combination. Emergency response plans do not need to be unique to cyanide. Some operations may have a cyanide-specific emergency response plan, but others may have a site-wide emergency response plan which includes a specific section or sections that cover cyanide events. Similarly, many operations have a general emergency response plan which spans the whole operation as well as a separate, narrower emergency response plan for their processing plant. The emergency response plan for the processing plant often includes cyanide emergencies or is specific to cyanide emergencies. Another common approach is for the processing plant to develop a series of procedures focusing on a cyanide emergency response, which, taken together, form the cyanide emergency response plan. These are often linked to the normal cyanide standard operating procedures, but include provision for normal, abnormal and emergency conditions. It is important to keep in mind that the key for compliance with Principle 7 is not the format of the plan. On the contrary, compliance depends on whether the plan includes the necessary information in sufficient detail to adequately respond to on-site cyanide emergencies. In order to make the emergency response strategies as effective as possible, Cyanide failure scenarios should be developed. These should be critically examined to ensure the scenarios and the associated responses are relevant to conditions at the operation. Cyanide failure scenarios are typically developed by techniques such as risk assessments, brainstorming sessions, what-if discussions, and reviews of original hazard and operability, or HAZAP, studies for the plant and the mine. Cyanide failure scenarios are particularly important from an auditing perspective. When determining whether the emergency response plan is adequate, 
a code auditor will review the potential cyanide failure scenarios developed by the site and consider how the emergency response plan addresses these scenarios. It is important to recognise that although there are many commonalities in cyanide emergency response, every site is different. As a result, it is critical that careful thought and planning is put into site-specific cyanide response strategies and capabilities. Site-specific conditions can affect planning for responses to cyanide releases in a number of ways. For example, an operation in a cold climate with indoor cyanide storage and process tanks will likely have different concerns and responses to a cyanide release which takes place at an operation that has its cyanide storage and process tanks outside. Similarly, an operation with high-strength cyanide storage tanks located some distance from the processing plant may also have an increased risk of cyanide release from pipelines, but lower potential worker impact compared with an operation with its tanks closer to the plant. Given their different risk profiles, each operation should have different response concerns. The location of an operation's tailings storage facility is another factor that affects response planning. Some operations may locate their tailings storage facility further away from the operation, but in close proximity to surface water. These operations' response scenarios and capabilities would be different from operations where no surface water is present and tailings are stored close to the operation. Other common site-specific considerations include the size of the workforce, proximity to external responders and medical facilities, proximity to surface water, and to local towns and residences. After cyanide failure scenarios, the next most important part of any emergency response plan is the development of adequate site capabilities and resources. A common way of developing these capabilities is via cyanide release and response drills. These drills should themselves be based on the cyanide failure scenarios we were just discussing. Thankfully, actual cyanide release incidents are not common. As a result, auditors typically check the effectiveness of a cyanide emergency response from drill reporting documentation, as well as from responses to actual cyanide events or non-cyanide events. By reviewing drill reports, an auditor can assess response times, training efficiencies and strengths and weaknesses in order to confirm that the site is well prepared to manage cyanide under normal, abnormal and emergency conditions. It is essential to develop corrective action plans for weaknesses and retest the responses in subsequent drills. It is wasting drill effort and time if lessons learned are not corrected and further tested in subsequent drills. The code also asks for stakeholder involvement in an operations emergency response planning. It is expected that such plans should include consultation with the workforce and relevant stakeholders such as external emergency responders. However, the need for a mining operation to engage stakeholders in the emergency planning processes varies greatly, to such a degree that engagement may not be necessary for some operations. For example, some operations, like those in certain regions of West Africa or close to the Arctic Circle, are located in very remote areas. In some cases, there are no external emergency responders available within hundreds of kilometres. In these situations, 
consultation with external responders is simply not possible. There is no external involvement in response activities. However, it is still good practice to liaise with whatever emergency authorities there are for skills transfer and good neighbour reasons. Some sites incorporate liaison with local emergency response authorities in their initiatives to meet the code's expectation for Principle 9, which focuses on dialogue. Another important aspect of stakeholder involvement is when a nearby community may be potentially affected by a cyanide emergency at the mine. This could occur, for example, at an operation where a cyanide gas release or release of process solution or tailings might require local residences to be evacuated. Should a cyanide failure scenario identify the potential need for community evacuation, this needs to be very carefully planned with the relevant stakeholders. In some cases, local jurisdictions such as the civil defence or police must be involved. Sometimes they are the only bodies authorised by law to require citizens to evacuate. Public evacuation drills are very sensitive initiatives and should be carefully considered before implementation. This is because they could result in misunderstanding or confusion with a real event. Alternative forms of drill are sometimes a better way of identifying strengths and weaknesses in the full evacuation plans and communication strategies related to the evacuation of local residents. An example of an alternative kind of drill specifically for public evacuation would be a desktop exercise involving all the relevant managing bodies, such as the mine, local police and emergency response agencies, community leaders, political leaders and representatives. Emergency response personnel and equipment are also very important features of any emergency response plan. In a code compliance audit, the auditor will ask very specific questions about the designation of appropriate emergency response personnel, their training, and the availability of the necessary emergency equipment. The various permutations of these preparations are very dependent upon the site-specific cyanide failure scenarios. When considering whether a cyanide emergency can be appropriately managed, code auditors will consider the relationship between an operation's response scenarios on the one hand and the capabilities of its personnel on the other. Auditors will also ask specific questions about internal and external communications relating to cyanide incidents. Because of this, it is important to ensure that there is a clear communications procedure or set of procedures in place. These procedures should govern both internal and external communications about cyanide emergencies. In many cases, mine staff and management are not permitted to make public statements on such emergencies. Instead, they are communicated by specialised company head office communication professionals. The code not only looks at immediate response to cyanide-related emergencies – it also considers longer-term response issues such as soil and water remediation, decontamination and cleanup after cyanide incidents. Plans and procedures need to include consideration of these and refer to any necessary preparations of this kind. These preparations might include emergency sampling procedures, prohibition of inappropriate treatment chemicals, adequate stocks of treatment chemicals and equipment and provision of emergency drinking water supplies, depending on the site conditions. As mentioned earlier in this episode, 
Cyanide release and response drills are critical for compliance with Principle 7. But how frequently should an operation run its response drills? This depends on a number of factors. For example, it depends on whether the emergency response teams are regularly trained, or whether responders are operators on call-out or designated emergency responders on full-time standby. If there is a high turnover of employees, this may also affect the competency of individuals or their abilities and practice in working as teams. The Cyanide Code asks that drills be conducted so that all aspects of emergency response are tested on at least an annual basis. There are also different kinds of cyanide drills that can contribute to a rapid and informed response to cyanide emergencies. One type of drill is often termed the full cycle drill. Full cycle drills are designed to fully test response planning. As a result, they include all emergency activities and responders, from the location of the emergency to the clinic, hospital or designated medical treatment facility. If outside agencies are involved, this drill will also test their reaction time and training effectiveness. But there are also shorter, more focused drills, which can be very effective in building response capabilities. For example, drills to time the speed of putting on and taking off, or donning and doffing, full cyanide emergency personal protective equipment, PPE, such as PVC suits, gloves, respirators and self-contained breathing apparatus equipment are very useful for getting to cyanide victims quickly and safely. Another example would be testing the safest and quickest stretcher evacuation routes from, say, the top of the leech to an ambulance below. Remember, the fastest route is not necessarily the safest route for the victim on the stretcher. An item that is sometimes overlooked in emergency response drills is testing the response time for administering a cyanide antidote. Many antidotes are administered intravenously or by injection and so must be administered by specifically qualified responders. The availability of responders qualified to administer antidotes on all shifts should be tested. In addition, operations should also test the response times of qualified responders to areas where cyanide exposure may occur. As cyanide is a fast-acting poison, response time is absolutely critical in responding to human exposure and the effective administering of oxygen and or an antidote. Final requirement for the code that is worth discussing is regular reviews and revisions of an operation's emergency response plans or procedures. Such reviews should focus on the operation's response strategy as well as its response capabilities. The code does not stipulate review frequency, but it does expect operations to review response documents after actual cyanide emergencies after any significant operational changes to its cyanide management or cyanide facilities, as well as after identifying any learning points from drills which warrant a possible rethink of provisions. This concludes our codecast on emergency response. We hope that this has given you a better understanding of the code's basic expectations for emergency response planning and preparation. Additional details on this topic may be found in ICMI's Guidance for Use of the Mining Operations Verification Protocol, which is available on the Cyanide Code website. 
If you have any questions on this material or would like to make any comments, suggestions or requests for other topics to be covered, please send us an email at info at cyanidecode.org.